Welcome back to Parenting is Political. I'm assuming y'all are still listening, but maybe that's too much of an assumption. This is, this is episode two, if anything, they just started listening, though. True. Well, if you just started listening, we have another episode out. So, maybe you gotta listen. <laughs> but as of right now, this is episode two, called You Mad Bro? I'm Jasmine. And I'm Mo. And this podcast is about how parenting is political. Correct. And this week, we're going to be talking about anger. And Serena, greatest of all time, Williams. And the bullshit that happened at the U.S. Open. In addition to that, we're going to be talking about the ways in which our parents pre-programmed us to be afraid of our own expression of anger and rage, where it shows up in the context of society and relationship, and how to support our young people in our lives around the experience of anger. Mm -hmm. Also, for those just joining the show, if you hear gurgles and burps and farts and maybe even a scream um, or cry, that's because we believe that it should be normalized to have young people with you at work. And August, our three-month-old baby, is with us during this recording. A.K.A. our co-host. So, August is very typically the fart noises you hear in the background. (laughs) Typically is an important word there. Because who knows? So, let's get started. Yeah, let's do it. Um, So, in case you missed it, Serena Williams was playing in the finals at the U.S. Open. And uh, received a violation for coaching which she claims that she did not do. And in the middle of her claim, she made an important statement that said, she said, um, I don't cheat to win. I would rather lose. My daughter is watching and I want her to know I would never cheat. Things progressed there and uh, some really terrible calls were made and she ended up calling the umpire a thief because he stole a whole game and a point from her. And he decided that was verbal abuse and everything just escalated. And a million think pieces came out calling Serena Williams all sorts of things, saying that she was having meltdowns and tantrums and how dare she act this way and what were, what will her, her child think. Anyway, that just led us to be like, whoa, 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 back up. Uh, hold on. What? Look at August <laughs> smiling. I um, wish y'all could see this. Maybe one day we'll record one of our episodes, but August is just grinning. Oh, August. good job. Oh. <laughs> You're so beautiful. Yes, you are, Augie. All right, I digress. Yes, well, that was a cute moment with our co-host, August. <laughs> um, so anyway, we wanted to back up and talk about anger and who is allowed to express anger in our society, who gets punished for it and who gets rewarded. Uh. Um, we wanted to talk about how we talk to our children about anger and um, our experience with it as well. So that's kind of the opening. That's in case you missed it. I'm not sure how you could have missed it. But in case you did, that's why, what sparked our conversation around it. Um, so Jasmine, if you'll open up, what was your experience with anger growing up? And what was it? Were you taught about it? And what were some unspoken or maybe some spoken rules about anger? So for me, anger, uh, I think for most brown and black children as well, anger really couldn't be separated from my racial identity. And though um, 
I didn't have a strong political um, activist leaning as a child, you know, I just showed up as a child, I already was experiencing the politics of anger and, and as it intersects with race and gender at a very early age. So I remember being a child who just simply wanted to win because I'm highly competitive as a Virgo and I do tend to win and I tend to be the best in the room. No problem. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, y'all. I was um, like, wait a second. <laughs> just, just joking. Um, I have lots of room for improvement. I have an Excel list and can show you that. Oh, my God. Anyway, um, so I would just be a typical kid trying to play a game or trying to learn something in the classroom. And if I was competitive in any way, shape, or form... I would get a talking to from my teachers who would always use the word aggressive. Mm. That I didn't have to be so aggressive. And I remember at a very early age seeing the ways in which white girls were treated. The little white girls were, um, they were adventurous. They were taking the initiative. They were go-getters. They got the good job stickers. And I was greedy, wanting the spotlight aggressive, um, wouldn't, wouldn't share with others and give other people a chance to talk, uh, which some of that was showing up as my ADHD. Right. You know, I would get on an idea train and then I would just ramble and ramble on and I needed support in recognizing how to read a room, how to acknowledge whenever I've actually made my point and I don't have to keep orally processing, but those were a part of my disability, and I didn't receive the sort of help that other children did. I was just deemed a problem. The thing for me that helped kind of push me through that was the fact that I was academically exceptional, and so because I was a gifted and talented student, there was a bit more leeway for me, and I think also because I was light-skinned, um... The students, I mean, excuse me, the teachers and instructors were a bit more gracious toward me than they were my dark-skinned sister. And, um, so, so yeah, that, that was sort of before I even started displaying rage or anger. Uh, whenever I did finally get to the place where I was showing anger in the classroom, it was always absolutely inappropriate, always deemed unreasonable. I remember the first time I got into a debate, it was in middle school, and we were having conversations about indigenous folks, and I was talking about how my mom and my family were from the Oklahoma um, leg of the Cherokee Nation, and... Uh, this white girl said that she had her roll card and my mother has a number and her family members have numbers and for those who don't know what that means uh, the Cherokee Nation as well as other quote-unquote civilized tribes um, were colonized and had treaties and were given some provisions And in order to get access to those provisions you have to have membership um, official membership into the nations And so you get a card, a roll number, that identifies you as a member of that tribe. Well, my family has their numbers. I, though, because I had a black father, was not allowed to have one. So I was super... Now, not, not to say that there aren't other black kids who are Cherokee. Yes, there are other black kids who are Cherokee who have their numbers. 
I was not allowed mine because my mother's Cherokee family would not let her claim me as Cherokee. Right. They said that I I was black, I had to be black, I didn't get benefit of being Cherokee, despite the fact that I am. Yeah, that was <laughs> important clarification. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, that's a little bit of my history, but this experience um, that was part of my familial trauma uh, kind of pu- bubbled up as I was having this debate during our English unit around Cherokee identity, and this white woman who had, like, blonde hair and blue eyes was talking about how Cherokee she was and her number. And I just said, no, I'm pretty sure your people are colonizers and that's why you have a number. And oh. and the teacher said that, Jasmine, that's inappropriate. You're ta- attacking her. And the girl started crying. Wow. Now, again, we're, we're in middle school and we're talking about colonization. We're talking about Native American realities. I'm feeling the feelings of being rejected while I'm seeing this white girl being fully accepted as Native. And that was a really light, quote-unquote, attack on her when I just said, no, I'm pretty sure you look like the colonizer. I almost got suspended because of that. Really? The teacher said I was too angry. She said I was too aggressive. And so my experience around anger has always been... Um, based on the litmus test of the discomfort of whiteness, mm. right? So how, how appropriate or inappropriate my anger was deemed was always about the white folks in the room that I was making uncomfortable, um, even whenever it was an act of justice, right? Mm-hmm. And I've even seen this in movement spaces, how black and brown folks can make white folks uncomfortable with their anger, um, particularly their righteous anger. And as long as the folks in the room are, like, comrades or allies and are, like, nodding in agreement of the anger, you can tell the energy in the room will shift. Which, to me, still feels like white folks are gatekeeping the anger and the experience of anger. So, that's a little bit of my experience with anger. And I have so much more when I became a mother. The anger that I'm allowed to feel on behalf of my children as a black mom shifted um, I thought that would give me more permission, like the mama bear energy, but no. No. <laughs> no. I have not seen that as no, an experience. No, usually it becomes um, this rhetoric around, well, you're the one that decided to pop out that many kids, so if you're going to be angry about it, it's your own fault. Wow. Yeah. Man, it, I'm so glad we're talking about this this week. It becomes the trope, right? Yeah. Um, the angry black woman trope or the welfare queen trope or the the, the harlot um, Je- Jezebel trope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, he's sm- oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, um, thanks for sharing your experience. I think the important thing that you said there was that your ability to show anger was always directly related to the discomfort of, like, the white folks who were in the room. Mm-hmm. And I think as someone who was assigned female at birth and was raised and socialized as a girl, um, my yeah. anger was always... My litmus test was how uncomfortable like males felt or the the authority around me felt and so there's a statistic out there that like young girls are told by the time they're seven four times more than boys are told to use their nice voice um and so you know as i was growing up anger was always like a no-no emotion is what basically i was told was that you know, it's it was not nice to experience that, and you had to find a better way to express yourself. 
And I was often told, you know, get over it. You know, life's not going to always be fair. Figure out a different way to deal with it. Um, and for me, I was in every sort of competitive sport that I could think of growing up. And so a lot of my anger, I got, I was able to get out playing sports. But I remember very distinctly, like, in basketball in particular, um, anytime I would get mad on the court, I would slap my hands together. Because, <laughs> did you get Sorry, that fart on there? That was huge. <laughs> he ripped one. But yeah, I would get um, very upset on the court if, you know, something didn't go right and I would slap my hands together. And I remember, like, my mom pulling me aside in the middle of the game or, like, my coaches talking to me and be like, hey, get it, get it together. And I felt like that was a very calm thing to have done during the middle of a sports game. If I got frustrated with something that I did, I would just kind of, like, hit my hands together. But I wasn't allowed to even show that much anger or frustration. You weren't allowed to use your body to express your own emotional state. Yeah, exactly. I was told I had to get it together. Like, wow. And so from very, I mean, again, like that was an early, like middle, again, middle school memory, I think was, I was trying to like learn even from that point. Okay. I can't even use the limited resources I have to express what I'm feeling. So I just got to stuff it down. And then like my parents never fought in front of us. Like we weren't ever exposed to any kind of like arguments. And so I just didn't have any sort of framework of how to experience anger. And it was always something that was kind of stripped away from me. And, and from a very early age, we charge the expression of anger and the experience of anger with significant amounts of shame. Right. But I think, the important thing here and is that that's not that's not true and i think that that's what like i want to come across in this podcast is there's a really great audrey lord quote that i found when i was getting ready for this podcast that says that there are loads of information to be found in anger so anger is a way it's a way to show us and to show let us know that there's something going on that's not okay yeah so i can speak on this yeah. as a licensed therapist i'm continually Um, Well, first, it's important to understand that the vast majority of my clients are folks who have bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder. Um, They also have, uh, in addition to the mood disorders that most of my clients have, they have personality disorders. Meaning, um, from the very early stages of their life, Society says that something has broken in them, and so the very root identity of who they are is considered bad and uh, unfixable. So I provide low to no cost service to the quote-unquote worst of the worst, and I don't frame them that way. Uh, The field of psychology and society does. So... It's really important to note the demographics because this demographic shows up with a lot of anger. And it's yeah. completely justified, by the way, because um, this August is breastfeeding and slurping. Just guzzling over here. Just guzzling it down. So anyway, um, what I tell these clients is that anger, which is considered a secondary emotion... As in, it's not the first thing we feel. It's usually the second or third thing we feel. Anger points us to places in our lives where our boundaries are being violated or when we've happened upon a narrative that triggers a very charged memory or belief about ourselves Mm -hmm. or a false reality about ourselves, right? So anger then serves as this signpost for things that we 
should explore deeper. And also it's an invitation to act with curiosity around what is actually happening to me in this moment. What, in what ways do I need to take good care of myself and or notice something about myself or change my circumstances if possible, right? We usually get angry toward other folks whenever they're violating parts of, um, parts of the values of who we are. Um, and of course there's pathology in anger. A lot of times, um, we've, we've been trained to use anger as manipulation. Yeah. Um, and as a source of control. Which is absolutely uh, conditioned and supported for cisgender men. <laughs> cisgender men are allowed to use anger to control as amount of power. And that goes back to what we talked about at the top of the show, which who is allowed to be angry. Exactly. Um, because anger can be a source of power, only cisgender hetero white men are allowed to use anger as a power capital. Yeah, they're the ones who get rewarded. They don't get punished for showing anger. It's seen as, like, a a good quality trait. Right. So then whenever we see movement spaces where uh, the under, um, excuse me, the vulnerable communities that are not usually um, conditioned to access their anger use anger, it becomes terrifying to whiteness. Yeah. And that's what we saw with the Panther movement this militancy, this, this, you know, idea to take up arms, which is a direct visual to anger and aggression, um, that had to be squashed really quickly because whiteness couldn't tolerate it. It was too much power. It was too much risk for, um, the culture of whiteness to allow black folks to be experiencing that kind of anger. And I would say it's it's the same thing for young people. Young people are taught um, hierarchical power that um, sort of seeds the ground, or excuse me, fertilizes the ground for patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism at a very young age. And when we are teaching young people that, oh, I'm the adult, I'm allowed to be angry at you because I have more power, but you're not Mm. allowed to be angry at me or express your anger in a way that makes me uncomfortable, Mm We condition them and prep them to accept the ways that capitalism is going to commodify them, the way patriarchy is going to use hierarchical power um, and gender-based power, and the ways in which white supremacy um, is going to uh, be very covert around anti-blackness and the subjugation of black and brown bodies, right? Right. So we are priming young people from the very beginning of their life whenever we control their experience with anger rather than facilitate it, diffuse it, and allow them to learn from it and become more intimate as an experience, um, as we experience anger together, when we squash it and, yeah. and try and be punitive to them as a result of our discomfort or our confusion, we set them up to receive those messages from those systems of oppression. And that's why, in a lot of ways, folks who have this critical consciousness, this moment that they wake up to oppression, go, well, how? How was it that I was accepting this for so long? How did I not know? How did I not see it? Well, because in many ways, from the very moments of your life, these systems of oppression were embedded as mm-hmm. covert messages in how we love one another and how we speak to one another, how we 
just demonstrate care and, and interact in our interpersonal connections. Right. So it was, so it feels like this sudden trick of like, well, when did, (laughs) when did it show up in my life from day one? When we hold a baby and the baby's screaming, and the baby's probably screaming because of gas, and we put that baby to our chest and we say, oh, don't be mad. Calm down. Calm down. Well, I don't want to calm down. I'm in pain. And again, it's that, it's the way for the baby to say that something's not right. And I think that that's like so critical as we are raising young people to allow them to use that internal system that says, hey... Something's not fair here. Something, I'm sensing some sort of injustice. Mm. And when we strip that away, we're stripping away their first, most most primitive, like, internal messaging to say, I'm going to stick up for myself. Or I mm-hmm. think that something needs to be said here. And, uh, the, I mean, that was stripped away from, from me. And that's how I ended up going through most of my life being like, oh, everything's okay with the world. And then... I had that big aha moment like you were talking about. I was like, how did I not know all this stuff was happening? Yeah. Because, like, my internal alarm system through anger was stripped away from me at a very, very early age. Absolutely. And anger is the most primitive alarm system. Yeah. And along the, the lines of that thought, whenever folks, particularly white folks do begin to wake up to the oppression and their complicity in the status quo and start wanting to do something about it, many of them, particularly the ones that I've been in contact with as, you know, intimate relationships, um, as coaching, or excuse me, as coaching folks, as folks that I've organized in the movement spaces, they still have a really difficult time um, accessing their anger around justice even because after they realize they still have this narrative that's happening of like I'm not allowed to be angry and then on top of that their white anxiety goes well I can't be more angry than white people because I'm a part of the problem or excuse me black people because I'm a part of the problem and I should make space for black anger Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely you should you know there should be space for black rage and black anger um and also, because you can hold both intention, hey, white people, access the angry parts of yourself that are not, that are related to your rejection of whiteness. Yeah. Please. Say that again. Access the parts of yourself that are related to your rejection of whiteness around yeah. anger. Use that anger. Anger can be a really good motivator. Totally. And um, we just are so terrified of it. I mean, I'm terrified of white people's anger for different reasons than white people are terrified of their <laughs> own anger. Obvi. Mm-hmm. Obvi. So then, to bring it back to Serena, when those reporters say, what are you going to tell your kid about your meltdown as though it's something that she should be embarrassed of? Which, by the way, have they ever asked any white male tennis player? John John McEnroe, what are your kids going to think about your... (laughs) No one fucking asks him. But they asked Serena in a heartbeat, what are you going to tell your kid? Mm. I hope she tells her child that she was experiencing a really difficult moment that was layered with oppression and struggle as a black woman because misogynoir is real and she was being fully human. Yeah. Because that's all that was happening. Yeah. Which, uh is really important um, segue into this last story that I have. So when Addison, who is uh, our middle child, oh my god, she's a middle child. <laughs> she's a good two now. A, she's a cisgender girl. 
I was really, really mad about something that, honestly, there was no need for me to be um, as upset as I was. I was overreacting. And in my expression of anger and frustration, I just, like, slid everything off of the table. Just, like, shoved it on the floor. And Addison was sort of anxious about what was happening. And I let her know, Mommy's okay. I'm just feeling very angry and frustrated. Mommy's not going to hurt you. You don't have to be afraid. Because oftentimes the the societal messages are if someone's angry around you, you're in physical. You're going to get hurt. Physical risk, right? And after she saw that it wasn't about her and that she wasn't at risk, she was like, wait, I can do that? And I said, you can do what? And she's like, when I'm angry, I can like, like express it with my body. I could like punch my pillow. I said, absolutely you can. And that was how um, the conversation and the realization happened with Addison. Um, and, you know, with the other siblings as well, that I had been teaching our kids these lessons around anger and uncomfortable emotions, but I hadn't really been overtly providing a sort of medium for the expression of those things. So you're saying that she learned it by watching you display it, correct? Yes. But I had never given her express permission around certain things or ma- or, or kind, of, kind of coached her. Mm-hmm. We teach kids how to bathe their bodies. We teach them how to use the restroom, how to eat, how to behave in public. But oftentimes, kids are only left to infer what they are and are not allowed to do around emotional experiences. And it requires being intentional. Mm-hmm. Like, you intentionally have to teach kids what to do with those really big feelings And even those small feelings, like boredom, like what does a kid, you know, besides get out of my house and don't come back until the (laughs) streetlights come on, uh, how does a child handle the experience of boredom and loneliness, which will be another episode we talk about, but concerning anger. So I created this resource um, that helps you teach your kids about anger, and I'll walk through that really quickly. So the first thing you want to do whenever you're teaching your kid about anger is to get curious. You want to know what was the precipitating event that triggered the kid's anger. And this is a really good opportunity for you to learn something about your child, the child, and yourself, really. It's a place that you get to deepen your empathy and your connection and to diffuse some of the shame that surrounds anger. Mm, Yes. The next thing you want to do is explore. So you'd ask the child about where the anger lives in their body. This is important because a lot of times we don't have a verbal expression of anger. We have a physical expression of anger. And those of us who have been conditioned to not display the anger or let it out of us will internalize it. Yeah, and I really, really love this one because this was something I definitely was not ever taught was where in your body do you feel these things like that's so important because it not only does it ground you with yourself it helps you understand like oh I am feeling this I'm carrying it in my body in these places Mm -hmm. 
And that can also help us understand, like, why is my neck so sore all the time? Yeah. Or, like, yeah. why is my lower back always hurting? Mm-hmm. There's something that's alerting me that, like, okay, something's not right in this situation. Now, be prepared to accept the answer that it, the child that you're talking to gives. Because, oh, hold on. We've got a spit-up alert. And that came out of August's nose, too. That was impressive. Oh, so be prepared. Oh, things are coming out of both ends. Oh gosh. Brown alert. That's why August was so fussy. It's still coming still out coming of the out? nose. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm. Hold on, we've got to take care baby. of Augie. All the liquids are evacuating at once. So along the lines of being prepared for the answer that your child gives, the first thing you want to do whenever they give you an answer, if it's precious, don't laugh. No, truly, don't laugh because laughing indicates a lack of seriousness and the last thing you want to do is demonstrate to the child, the young person, that you're not taking serious the experience they're having. So even if they're like, oh, my anger showed up in my butt, okay, (laughs) your next question, your next question is, okay, what is it doing there? Is it making the muscles tense? Is it vibrating? What color is it? How does it feel? Is it hot or cold? Is it uncomfortable? The first time I asked Addison this question, because she's a total Aries, she said, my anger's showing up in my fist because I want to go punch their faces in! (laughs) Right? So I was able to say, it sounds like you're really angry and you want the other person to feel the pain that you're feeling. Which is the next step of this resource. Announce the feeling. So name the feeling and then become sort of a scientist or explorer with your your child and look for the feelings that are underneath the initial response of anger. So when Addison said she wanted to punch her friend's face in, I was able to say, oh, this seems like you want to create pain. You're feeling some pain. And then after I helped her uncover that she was feeling pain, and that's why she wanted to hurt someone to make them feel the way she felt, the tears started rolling in. Mm, Yeah. It was, yeah, you're right, Mommy. It hurt when they rejected me, so I want them to feel physical suffering. Um, So announce the feelings. Help the child name what's underneath the anger. And this is also, aside from your opportunity to build a vocabulary around emotional experience, it's also an opportunity to bond and normalize the experiences of emotions. Yeah. And also to give the message to the child that uh, feelings aren't requests for action. I told Addison, there is okay that you want to fight someone. It's okay that you want to punch them. Just because we feel it doesn't mean we have to act upon it. Mm-hmm. Which is super important, and I wish that more people who are, like, grown-ups in our society right now <laughs> learned that lesson when they were younger. Yeah, don't at me, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got a couple of people that we could um, give that lesson to. Yeah. So the other step, um, before the final step, is to affirm the feelings. And we always forget this. We forget that so many of us are... we internalize these messages that we're not allowed to think and feel the things that we do. And so those of us with power, while we should not be um, white savioring or being, you know, uh, pandering to those with less power than us, it really is important 
in, in situations where there is far more structural power for an adult than a young person for the adult to say in love and openness, hey, you're powerful, you're capable, and what you're, experience, uh, what you're experiencing is absolutely acceptable. Yeah. Man, what a difference that's going to make, too. And then this is your opportunity to explain what you know about anger. Affirm to the child that anger can feel big and powerful. It's your chance, based on the child's age, of course, to teach them about the nuances of anger as it intersects with their age, gender, and race. And this is where the political education comes in, Mm -hmm. where you get to say, for example, in my instance, I got to say to Addison, hey, Addison, some people, because you're a cisgender girl, are going to say it's not okay for you to want to fight someone they might even say strange things like that's not very ladylike. And that's their way of telling you they think people with your particular gender are not allowed to experience any kind of emotions that make people feel threatened or uncomfortable. And guess what? You are. You get to show up as big and as loud as you need to in the moment and understand Engaging in that power, claiming that power, means that there are going to be some consequences. So not only do I I explain what anger could mean for her, I help her understand what anger could mean for others. Also, this is another opportunity for you to let them know that whatever they're feeling is okay. The last thing, and this is crucial, is creating a plan. What we often fail to do outside of what I mentioned before, affirming, is that we don't plan for next time. So teaching your child, next time we feel these big feelings, here are some options of how we can handle this is very important. And walking through the plan, the younger they are, the more simple the plan needs to be. I would say under, uh, excuse me, around five five to eight years old, it needs to be just a three-step plan. And the plan could be as easy as we feel our feelings. We, we express our feelings in ways that are safe for us and others. And we talk to a parent or a trusted person about what we're feeling. So, yeah. That's the resource. And where can they find that resource? <laughs> it is in a PDF form under the resource tab on parentingispolitical.org. You can download it, print it off share it widely, uh, put it on your fridge and practice this habit. And if you have things that you would amend about the resource or add to, let us know because obviously this is a collaborative effort where we're all learning together. Our tiny co-host fell asleep on us. So we have no more baby noises. (laughs) August is out. No, I think that, I mean, that covers it. That um, was the conversation that I wanted to have around it. And again, I would really love it if I could get some interaction from our listeners. So you can email us if you have any questions about the episode, if you have an antidote you'd like to share about uh, talking to your kids about anger or a time you experienced anger, um, shoot us an email. We have an email set up at contact at parentingispolitical.org or you can find us on Instagram at parentingispolitical and unfortunately 
We are on Facebook as well. Wah, wah, wah. And we just want to remind folks who are new to this that you're going to hear lots of sounds and moving around. Yeah. <laughs> we are literally sitting on our bed and holding our baby and talking into a microphone. We're not sound engineers or professional podcasters. We're just here having a conversation that's really authentic, uh, navigating all of the conversations around parenting that we really didn't uh, have in the very beginning of becoming parents. And also, it doesn't seem that our parents were having these conversations. (laughs) So this is an effort to do things different and well, um, and or when we don't do them well, learn how to apologize and cultivate the ability to evolve as our dynamic relationships with our young people evolve. Absolutely. Well, thanks for listening. And until next time, we are Parenting is Political. Bye. Bye.